Welcome to the IQ Meet EQ podcast. I'm Jackie Broman, Principal Solicitor at TBA Law and CEO at Legally Wise Women. And I'm here with Ush Danik, former corporate lawyer, then head of HR, and now an emotional intelligence coach. Morning, Ush. Morning, Jackie. How are you going? I'm well. How are you? Good, really good. Another week down already. My goodness. Actually, we didn't even meet last week, did we? So it's been two weeks since we spoke. Yeah, that's right. How was your Easter after all? Do you like to sleep a lot? No, it was nice. It was just chilled. I just um, read out I didn't have Gia with me. So a couple of days of just chilling and a couple of days of working. So it's a pretty good, good mix. You? Good, good. Yes, I got away for the four days down to Queenscliff. And so it was just quiet. I even forgot to take a book with me. It was a little bit weird. so. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a nice little break, short break. And now we're almost at the end of April. Oh my God, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Home stretch for April. Yeah, that's right. What else has been happening? How's your training going? Yeah, good. Good. Training's really good. Um, still haven't missed a day. So it's oh just God. been, yeah. So two days a week is PT, and then I'm doing three days on my own. So, gee, you're doing well. Yeah, I know. It's been full on, but I'm really enjoying it. So it's been great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you monitor the progress? Do you take measurements or what are you doing? No. So it's funny you say that, actually. I had a bit of a argy-bargy with my PT guy yesterday because he's really big on the scales and I'm not. And I'm not losing weight on the scales. Mm. But I know I am in my clothes. So he's got me tracking my food and macros every day, which is a pain, absolute pain. Mm -hmm. But it's good. It's working. (laughs) That's great. I love the instant feedback when you're tracking things. I think that that's good. Every now and then, a couple of times a year, I'll track my food for a couple of weeks just to see, you know. How it's going. Yeah, that I haven't blown out or that I, you know, if I change something drastic in my diet, what that impact is. And Yes. Mm, it's, and it's actually quite scary, isn't it, when you write down what you eat. Mine's been the opposite. I'm not eating enough calories. Mm. So it's almost like the body goes into starvation mode and won't lose what it needs to lose. Yeah. So I'm trying to just increase more. And I'm like, yesterday, I'm like, all right, what should I eat now? Because mm. I can eat. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I've had a similar experience, actually. Have I spoke to you about my aura ring or aura ring? No. What is that? Yeah. So it's one of these tracking devices. It's got all these little chips on the inside of the ring. And so it takes your heart rate, your body temperature, your wow. movement, all those things. So I've been wearing it now for three months. And... <clears throat> I probably work out way too much. It tells me I don't recover well enough when I sleep. And it's showing me significant impact of stress, actually. So, in fact, I was quite depressed after I wore it for the first month. Wow. But now I'm starting to gamify it because I, I see throughout the week that my heart rate falls less and less while I sleep. And so I recover less and less towards the end of the week. And then my weekend, I have to spend recovering properly. And so if I work out heaps on the weekend, I miss that recovery. And then the following week is even worse. So it's quite interesting. That is crazy. I wish Mm. I had a problem working out too much. Can we like swap for a bit? (laughs) Maybe if I wear the ring, do you think it will convert me (laughs) 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 to work out too much? (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting little metrics. But yeah, I like that instant feedback stuff. So Mm. that is great. Yeah, Mm. no, we'll see how we go. Mm. But it's good. I'm enjoying it. The main thing is you're getting healthier, irrespective of the scales. So that's, that's the best thing. That's right. More energy, more movement, and hopefully, you know, a longer, healthier life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, shall we jump straight into listening to our guest? Yes. Uh, I'm a little bit excited to introduce Rugare Gomo to you. Um, he was originally from Zimbabwe, but he tells the story. He came to Australia and finished high school and then got a law degree at Monash University and ran a firm for a while as well. But now he's a high performance coach. So let's have a listen. I'm so pleased, Rigare, to welcome you onto the podcast. How are you? It's this afternoon. (laughs) 
thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> it's funny because I actually met you when I was looking for a podcast co-host and you were the one of the people that we, you know, that I spoke to about potentially being a co-host. So it's coming full circle when we've got you as a guest. So yes. very exciting. It was so fun me catching up with you and our relationship has just deepened ever since then. Yes, you've got so much to offer. There's so much in your story and I'd love for all our listeners to get the most benefit from it. So let's go back and talk about your childhood. So what you wanted to be growing up, but also where you were and um, what that was like. Sure, thank you. So I'll first start with my name. My name is Rugare Gomo. And the reason I say that is because I couldn't pronounce my name till I was five years old. <laughs> so I, I love saying my name. I'm grateful. I grew up in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is in the southern part of Africa. And however, that's not where I was born. I was born in England. So I was born in a small town called Norwich in England but I never grew up in England. And I mentioned this because being born in England and then growing up in Zimbabwe actually altered my life in terms of how I perceive my life. So though I was born in England, I was not a British citizen and I was stateless. Mm. So I spent the next 15 years of my life without being British or being Zimbabwean. My parents always wanted a better life for their children. So I actually was raised speaking English as my first language rather than the local language Shona. Wow. And because of that, when I started going to school, I was so disconnected because everybody spoke Shona. Mm. That's when I started having an identity crisis mm. and when I decided I didn't belong. So growing up in Zimbabwe, um, though I am Black, though we had African friends or Zimbabwean friends and family, I already felt different because of the way my parents chose to raise us. Very grateful for the way they raised us, but it was very different. So for me, what this looks like in reality was um, in African culture, it's very normal for aunts and uncles to tell the children what to do. My parents did not want our aunts and uncles to tell us what, what to do. They really had a strong vision and culture for us, which they wanted to be very separate to how they were brought up. So I grew up with very strong, independent thinking. I grew up believing that I could use my voice. I grew up believing I could pursue what I wanted. The problem, though, was that I grew up in Zimbabwe where there are limited opportunities. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter what I thought. The question was, would those opportunities even be available to me? Mm -hmm. The other part to this in my growing up was that because I spoke English as my first language, um, there was a perception that I was trying to be better than everybody else. So, you know, little kids can be really mean and nasty. Mm. So my experience of school was mostly horrible. I was bullied nearly every day. I would go in scared, you know, who's going to, you know, tease me today? Who's going to try and steal my colors? And then there was this perception that I came from a wealthy family because mm. I spoke English. Well, in my reality, I grew up in a very low middle-class family. So... Mm. What that means in the Zimbabwean context is there's low middle class and then there's poor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in my home, how I grew up was my mom and dad would be working, but it was very normal to help my dad raise the chickens mm -hmm. and go and sell those chickens to make an extra income in the home. Mm -hmm. It was very normal to help my mom sewing, you know, curtains, bedspreads to bring in that extra income. Mm -hmm. Yet at school, the way the kids related to me was like, ah, Rugare, the, the rich one. But that was not my reality at all. Mm. So a lot of the time, I actually would go to school in fear. The person you're talking to right now wasn't the person who first came to Australia. And I'll share more about that shortly. 
Yes. So tell us then how you came to make your way to Australia because it's an important life-changing choice too. Yes. So because of my mum and dad's work, my mum was a social worker. So my mum was one of the first women doing HIV AIDS education in Zimbabwe in the early 90s. Mm. During that time, one in four Zimbabwe's were HIV positive. Mm. It's a horror. Mm. You know, people were dying all the time. I've had aunts, you know, uncles, cousins, friends dying. Mm. And but my mum has used her life, you know, educating people about um, sex and safe sex in a, a man's world where very unusual, uncommon, not heard for or heard off to do that. So yeah. I'm really proud of my mum. And my dad also then used his life in youth leadership programs. So street kid programs, family counselling, and because of their work would have volunteers come from around the world, from the UK, from Australia, from the US, and you know, volunteer in these programs. And that, for me, created exposure. Mm-hmm. Being able to interact with people outside from Zimbabwe mm-hmm. gave me an insight of what could be possible for me. Mm-hmm. If it was possible for them, it could be possible for me. And so when I was 14 years old, I wrote a letter to one of these volunteers, Andrew Gaskell, who had come to Zimbabwe when I was five years old. And I wrote a letter to him asking if I could come to Australia. I did not tell anybody that I did. (laughs) And the reason was because I didn't want any of the cultural norms to get in the way. So again, though I was allowed to have my own voice, to Mm. think my own way. Mm. I'm typically in Zimbabwean tradition. It's the parents who should have approached Andrew. And I was convinced that my parents would not have felt comfortable. Mm. I could see their own limiting beliefs. Mm. So I was like, nobody is going to be in the way of my future. I'm going to take charge of my future. And for me, coming to Australia was about and having an education that I would not have otherwise have had in Zimbabwe, mm. you know? And so that's what inspired me to do that. Another thing that inspired me was reading. Mm. So reading, you know, was one of the main things that my dad and my mom nourished with all of us children, which created exposure. We couldn't travel. To, to go overseas, that would be maybe five or 10 years worth of savings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was not a possibility. Mm-hmm. But books nurtured my mind. And I just wanted to explore the same opportunities as I was reading in those books. One of my favorite books at that time as a 14-year-old, believe it or not, was Patricia Conwell. <laughs> she, was, she was this forensic scientist. And I was like, I'm going to be a forensic scientist. <laughs> <laughs> so I write that in my letter to Andrew. I write about my own possibilities and forensic science in Zimbabwe didn't exist. Mm. That whole world did not exist. But in my heart, I was like, that must exist maybe in Australia, the UK, Mm. the US. I'm reading it in the books. Mm -hmm. So for me, I, even to today, I read voraciously because Mm. my thinking is limited, but there's so much body of work out there. Mm. And without that exposure I don't believe I would even have had the courage or even the thought of Mm. coming to Australia Mm. so that is how my journey began now when Andrew received the letter I didn't know what was going to happen so for three months I waited (laughs) I'd go and check the, the mailbox nothing and then from time to time I'd be like is today the day And then I'd be like, oh no, I'm going to get in trouble. What if my dad finds out, my mom and dad find out, Andrew's going to tell my mom and my dad and ask, now I'm going to be in big trouble. I went through so many emotions during that time. And then one day my dad comes home and says, what's this about you going to Australia? And I look at him cheekily and say, "Uh, dad, I wrote a letter to Andrew. And then he says, well, Andrew says, yes, my heart like just talking to you about it, I'm getting tingles again. <laughs> I want to burst into tears. Mm. But imagine living in a country with limited opportunities mm. and then being told that 
yes, we can go on a journey of discovering how to leave for a new opportunity. For a 14-year-old, yes. my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can feel the, the emotion. Oh, my God. And for your dad to... Oh, because the emotion for him as well, like the shock, the surprise, the grief, the loss potentially, but also the excitement for you. Mm. Exactly. And then I was so great, grateful that my dad was also happy for me. Yeah. At this time, my mom was overseas in, I believe, Kenya or Nigeria doing some HIV AIDS education work. Mm. And so she did not know any of this. And I remember when we went to pick her up from the airport and on the drive back home, my dad is explaining about the opportunity and my mom is concerned. So the reaction I got from her was like, oh, mm. should you do that or not? And that was the reaction I didn't want. That was the reaction that I thought would be in the way. Mm. And they came to a conclusion that because they had a relationship with Andrew, Andrew had been coming regularly to Zimbabwe, you know, that it was going to be okay for me to go. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> and for myself, how I was for myself wasn't this person with a voice, like this strong voice. Nice. For me, I was quiet. Mm -hmm. I was shy. I was scared of the world. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was in a world where in Zimbabwe, where I felt I didn't belong, I was misunderstood, mm. and that had, had me be more insular and very disconnected from people. And so for my mom and dad to say yes to me, despite how I felt about myself or my low self-esteem was like really edifying. Mm. Like they could see the opportunity despite how I related to myself. And to have parents to believe in you that way is very edifying. Mm. You know, there's lots of fear in the world. So, you know, if you're a parent listening today and you're looking at your kids and you have concerns, I really urge you to edify mm. your children. That made a huge difference in building my confidence and my belief in myself and what I'm capable of. So fast forward. Yes. <laughs> you land here. Yes. And even before landing, you know, it took two years to land here. Right. Mm -hmm. Two years. You know, I had um, Andrew said yes, but we still didn't have a school. A school said yes to me. Kingswood College in Melbourne um, said yes. They've never had um, an, a Zimbabwean come to the school. So they gave me a part scholarship. Andrew used his own resources for my air tickets, yeah. um, paid for my school fees. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. Can you imagine a single person who's already a foster care to four other boys and a small business owner mm. using their real money for me? Mm. Wow, yes. What an individual. <laughs> what an individual mm -hmm. and you know he's been such a role model for what is possible for the kind of world we want to see and i could see he's living his purpose which is empowering young men you know to be um, empowered human beings in the world and he's putting his money where his vision is even at his own detriment yeah and yeah. he has shown that to me over and over again um but then the second hurdle was getting the visa. Getting an Australian mm -hmm. visa is mm -hmm. one of the hardest things in the world. Let <laughs> alone <laughs> oh. for a Zimbabwean. Mm. <laughs> let you know. Yeah, so minor too. Mm. A minor mm. and Andrew going into the embassy, vouching for me, signing documents. Because mm. as I said, we came from a low middle class family. We didn't have those resources. Yeah. So yeah. Andrew had to vouch for me. He had become my guardian yeah, yeah. in that regard. And you weren't a refugee. You weren't a skilled migrant. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm. So the opportunity, getting, creating this opportunity was very difficult. Yeah. Two years of work. Two years from the decision. 
And I remember seeing the visa in my passport. First of all, I didn't even have a passport. Remember, I was stateless. So yeah. mom and dad had to then apply for a passport. I was able to get a passport. They changed the immigration laws where children born overseas could now mm-hmm. apply for Zimbabwean citizenship. Yeah. Mom and dad spent a whole weekend in the capital city to get my passport. The visa arrived. And for me, it was a sense of freedom. I could go beyond the landlocked country my home country, Zimbabwe, Mm. for the first time in my life. Mm. (laughs) So that again was like, whoa. Mm. So then fast forward, you know, I come to Australia. I complete my year 11, year 12. Um, Did you do maths and science? (laughs) (laughs) So then, you know, it was, I, I, it is a very different system because the Zimbabwean system is the A-levels where you do three subjects. And again, for me, that's a limited opportunity because oh, how would mm. I know what I want to do with my life? I had no idea. Yeah. So I was very strategic. Okay. I did subjects that allowed me to either move into this to sciences yeah. or humanities. So okay. I did English um, as a first language, legal studies, chemistry, maths methods, mm-hmm. biology. I did year 12 biology. And then I did university biology in year 12. Great. Okay. So that was, so, so it allowed me to either go into um, biomedical science, Mm. medicine, Mm. law, Mm. arts. So that was the beauty of coming to Australia. Yeah. And so that's what I'm, one of the things I love about Australia is that you're not boxed in too young to have to choose your path. Mm. You're still given an opportunity to still forge your path. Mm. Very much so. Now, Mm. when I met you, you were a lawyer running your own law firm. You were doing business coaching and you were running your foundation. So you had a lot on your plate. But to get to law, was that your first choice? Like, is that what you did straight away? Yeah. So when I finished my year 11, year 12, again, there was no opportunity for me as an international student. So I was going to have to pay $20,000 a year. Mm. Andrew couldn't afford that. So it was like, what am I going to do? So over the next six years, I raised over $120,000 to go to university. I call that my first capital raising experience of my <laughs> yes. life. And that's what, that was the making of me mm. because there was no back door. Because if, if I failed, I was going to go back to Zimbabwe to poverty that was during the Zimbabwean crisis so I had to learn to speak I learned I had to learn to socialize I had to learn to connect I had to learn to mm-hmm. to be generous I had to learn to deal with lots of fear I had to come out of I got to come out of my skin I used to live in this context called white is better than black I had to mm-hmm. I, I became comfortable in my own skin I discovered mm-hmm. I was gay through that whole process so mm-hmm. I had to come through my coming out mm-hmm. and so that was the beginning And inside of that, you know, I went straight into an arts law degree, which was great. You know, I loved, it was, it it trained me on how to think, Mm -hmm. trained me in culture, history, but really how to think and be my own person was one of the things that a law degree makes available. And I'm always grateful. It's a toolkit for me. And then I worked for a law firm, Maddox Lawyers. Even then, that was an opportunity that I had to create myself because at that time, there was no point in hiring international students. So whenever the application process is for applying, would always ask if you're a permanent resident or a citizen. And I wasn't either. So there was no opportunity. No. And this was in 2007. Yeah. So not too long ago. And so I had to literally ask Maddox in a, in a conversation yeah. and hand in a paper application. That's how I created that opportunity. Mm. The immigration laws didn't even allow me to stay either at that time. And then six months mm. before I finished my degree, the Australian government introduced what the graduate visa, which allowed me to then take on <laughs> the opportunity with Maddox. So there are all Good. these barriers to opportunities. Mm. Mm. I had some great mentors who always said, stay in the law, but don't stay forever. Because there was a toxic culture in a traditional law firm and I took their advice. And so after about two years practicing as a lawyer, I left and worked in an I joined a, a billionaire family and creating one of their startups, an educational startup that I grew into a multinational company. You know, we opened their offices in the States, London, Mauritius, Canada. Mm. 
and that was life changing for me as a person in you know I was only like 28 29 years old mm -hmm. and learning that as a black gay man I do have skills that I can make a difference in the world and that helped obliterate my inferiority complex about myself so that was a great opportunity to learn that I'm no different from any human being and that my color of the skin doesn't have to be in the way of opportunity for myself. Yeah. Other people may choose not to give me an opportunity <laughs> because I'm black and gay, mm. but it doesn't mean I can't create my own for myself mm. or be resentful for that in any mm. case. And so that gave me the confidence then to as well start my own foundation, which was like the yes. GOMO foundation to give opportunities and scholarships to girls to go to secondary school in rural Zimbabwe. Mm. And we had our first girls complete their entire secondary school education. We had our first girl finish the university. And that's something that I am most proud of using my life for, yeah. that I was able to not be just the only person to have an opportunity to come to Australia, but also discover making that available for others who had no opportunity. And worse is that in Zimbabwe, to be a woman, if you don't have an education, it's typical that you go into early marriage mm. as well. Mm. That means you become economically dependent on the man as well, which then limits what's possible for you. And that's not okay with me, considering yeah. who my mom has been for me and my darling sister. I want them to have their best lives, yeah. just like I have. So I'm so grateful for that opportunity there. Yes. I mean, Andrew certainly modelled a whole lot of that for you. And then you created a way of, of doing that within your own purpose as well. So yeah, amazing. And how fulfilling. <laughs> very, very fulfilling. And yeah. it was lots of hard work. You know, it's fulfilling yeah. and there's yeah. lots of pain because they're depending help everyone yeah you can't help everyone i would yeah. get emails facebook messages mm. you know the need is great yeah. in the world yeah. and the opportunities are not there or mm. not being created mm. and i think we have a responsibility for us who are empowered human beings to actually create opportunities for mm. others because us humans you and i are connected whether for the rest of our lives mm -hmm. and all human beings are connected. So the question is, who am I going to be? Who are you going to be yeah. in elevating the human species? Mm. <laughs> it's very powerful. And uh, you were just explaining to me how your new partnership with Action on Poverty is just going to increase the, the reach and the impact that, you know, you've originally set up to do. Yeah. And it's not even, it's, we've been running the Goma Foundation for seven years, all volunteer run. Mm. And there were things that were great. We, you know, we had to become an organization and operate at the same level as Save the Children or World Vision because yeah. our funds go overseas. Mm. And we partnered with Action on Poverty but we were just not breaking through what it would, what we needed as an organization to really focus on the beneficiaries. In, in fact, our entrepreneurial energy was being stuck in the organization yeah. rather in making the difference. And for me, that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. mm. And so I, I drew a line in the sand and requested that we actually dissolve it. And so we now going to, to transferring the programs or to action on poverty who had already partnered with us to carry out the remainder of this program. So we're actually still in those kind of conversations right now yeah. as we speak. Yeah. But it was also having the courage to do that. Yeah. You know, it's something that you could say a lot of my DNA is in and something I'm passionate about, but it makes no sense to use my life in limiting myself but this is now going to help me unleash myself at another level. Mm. And I think that being a human, you know, being a human being, being an entrepreneur, being a creator, it's also really important to know when your creation has won its course mm -hmm. and having the courage to give it up. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, like your energy and the entrepreneurial energy in particular, then brings another skill to action on poverty as well. So they were really good at implementation and doing. And now the, I mean, it's a great synergy, isn't it? It is just wonderful. Mm. Very grateful mm. for them. And mm. they have people on the ground in Zimbabwe. They go mm. to the schools directly. And, you know, I think for me, 
I one of my lessons from this for myself was actually the courage to use my voice sooner when mm-hmm. things when I saw the trajectory, but I was held hostage to the to my perception of the disapproval of others. Oh, yes. And I share that because you know this is not just a regarded gomo personal phenomenon. We all want to please other people. Yeah. We all don't want to disappoint. And that can sometimes get in the way of living your best life mm-hmm. and creations. And I definitely failed as a leader in using my voice sooner yeah. because I was living, I, I, was, I was avoiding the disapproval of people. Yeah, yeah. And you went through that with your law firm as well because it had also run its course, didn't it? Yes. Mm. And with my law firm, it's like I've had, I've been, it's, it's, it's like the higher my higher power, the universe has kept on giving me lessons to develop (laughs) myself in my leadership, you know, Mm. and I can say this with no shame Mm -hmm. because I'm not held hostage to it. You know, if there was shame, then I wouldn't be able to take these kind of um, initiatives or live this a big life. Mm. So in my law firm, you know, I was running my law firm simultaneously as the coaching business. Mm. I actually loved it. I was a commercial law firm. We made a difference. We had a vision of empowering entrepreneurs, but then I got to see that many of the clients were not actually interested in living a purposeful life. They just wanted things fixed and making money. (laughs) And making money is important, but living, being happy, having joy is critical. No joy, your environment will experience it as well. Mm. And so I could see that my law firm was making a difference in solving and fixing issues but my coaching business was actually making the difference in creating leaders. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> and the two businesses were so different that my law firm was losing tens of thousands of dollars a month while my coaching business was growing exponentially. And that was a communication in itself. Mm. The communication that I started seeing was that we're making a difference, but my heart wasn't in it because I could see it wasn't authentic to who I tr- what I truly wanted to do, the true difference I wanted to make. And the true difference I wanted to make is building and equipping people to unleash their leadership. Yes. Why? Why do you create better leaders? <laughs> <laughs> oh, how long do we have with that question? <laughs> what that means to me is being able to forge your own path and live your your authentic life Mm. we tend to live in a world where you know and I meet many students law students engineering students and accounting students I'm doing law because my mom did wanted me to oh I got the marks Mm -hmm. profoundly unhappy (laughs) (laughs) many of us got the marks profoundly unhappy (laughs) and that for me is a wasted life. It's a painful life because when at the pain, when I meet my clients and to hear the stories of the pain or the escapism with alcohol or the affairs or the disconnection from their children, mm-hmm. and they really want to connect with their wife and their children, but they can't because they're so unhappy. Yeah. So that's not okay with me that we live in a world where many people are not actually living to their own true self, nor is it being modeled because yeah, then we're taking on just the fears of our parents, of our grandparents as well. So we never truly find our own path or forge our own path. And so for me, being able to forge your own path is the capability to authentically be the author of your life everywhere, <laughs> unreservedly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite, despite the consequences, despite people's opinions, that is missing. You know, I've just recently launched a program with Monash University. It's the first of its kind. It's the Rugare Gomo Leadership Program in Law. And we just launched that last week. And I've been working on that in negotiation with Monash for 12 months. Mm. And the two top things all the students have said is this, 
I have no idea what my purpose is. And there's huge low self-confidence between Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. How is that possible when they're entering into one of the top law schools in the world? Well, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, gee. How is that possible? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I feel my work in equipping people to be the authors and leaders of their own life and their destiny is critical because so what if they have a top law degree Mm. they can't even use it to the best potential they might access two percent of it Mm. rather than the full opportunity of it it's a game changer it is it is a game changer you are a game changer (laughs) thank you (laughs) and I can only be this way because other people believed in me. It started with my mom and my dad believing Mm. Mm. to be the author of your life. Mm. It also takes other people nourishing that it's okay to be you. It does. It does. It's you know, it's important. It is important. It's not the only element though, because you were going to be successful no matter what. I'm sure you were. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Jackie. (laughs) And I think, you know, the thing that I drew the line in the sand, because everybody needs to draw a line in the sand. If it's not black and white for you, you're not forging your own path. Mm Because then if it's black and white for you, you own it. 110% it's yours. And I drew the line in the sand, particularly when I discovered I was gay. (laughs) I like the way discovered I was gay. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it felt like a discovery, (laughs) Um, even though it seemed everybody knew before me. But there were some promises I made with my best friend, Jess, Jessica Taft. And one of them was that growing up in Zimbabwe, being gay, you go to jail. Mm. You'll be beaten up and mm. killed. Mm-hmm. That's, not, that's not a concept. It's a real fear. Mm. It's, you know, and I had the fear of being abandoned by my family. But I drew a line in the sand that I had to live my own authentic life. Keeping the secret of being gay was killing me inside. What it and every one of you, you know that when you have a secret inside, what it does to you. Mm. And imagine, you know, I was 21 years old when I started exploring my sexuality. But imagine growing in a society where you're not even allowed to think about your sexuality. Mm. And as a result, I actually have PTSD. As a result, mm-hmm. complex PTSD that I've been, I've worked, I work through. Mm-hmm. But I'm still empowered. I can say that because it doesn't hold me back. I can acknowledge the impact of my past Mm -hmm. and I can put things in place to empower me to fulfill my vision, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, equipping people to be leaders and forge their own path. So I drew the line in the sand to be completely authentic because if people are not authentic, it causes mental health illnesses. There was a time in 2005, I couldn't even walk or leave my bed for three months because of my inauthenticity, Mm -hmm. my fear of being gay. It causes all these all sorts of illnesses, mm. you know, and dest- destroys people's lives. Not cool, to put it mildly. <laughs> to put it mildly, that's that's right. So, I mean, what you've just been talking about, but and in fact, everything that you've learned. What would you go back and tell that young man, fourteen to sixteen years old, waiting, waiting? What would you tell him? Oh, makes me want to cry. Mm. It's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's, it really is going to be okay. And that it's okay to be yourself. The thing that I never get to hear, or even, even around me or around people, is that it's okay to be you. Mm. Mm. People don't allow you to be you. No. Yeah. And people, people are very quick to give their wisdom or their experience and opinion on something. And so I just really want that little boy to know that despite all the conversations, all the the disbelief in you, all the fear of being beaten up, all the fear of, of being destitute, it's all going to be okay being you. And that's what I'd love the listeners to know today. If you're on the borderline of like choosing fully to be you, it's going to be okay. In fact, it'll be wondrous, which is actually 
the reason for the existence of my company. It's actually to empower and enable people to live a wondrous life. Not a mediocre, not an okay, <laughs> not a good, a wondrous life. Yes, it not starts a mediocre by being okay. <laughs> not a mediocre, but the access to that is allowing ourselves to be, uh, to be completely ourselves. There's only one of us. There's no other Rugare Gomo. There's no other Jackie. There's, it just can't happen. And I can never tell you what to do because I can't feel, think, smell, touch the same way you do. I can empathize, but I can never, ever, 100% be like you. Mm-hmm. And whatever is unique inside of you, unleash it. <laughs> People may be scared. That's okay. But it's yours and it's yours for eternity so 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 powerful i'm so grateful that i met you all those years ago when i was looking for a co-host i'm so Mm. grateful that i've continued to have a relationship and that we're in each other's lives and i'm so grateful that you well you continue to delve deeper and find who you truly are as an example for us to be able to do it as well so Where can people find out more about you? Because they're going to want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, before I share where people can find out about me, thank you for also forging your own path undeservedly. You know, you've created this platform for people to use their voice and share their voice. So I just, first of all, thank you for that. Um, Where people can find me. And they can find me at connect at rugaregomo.com. That's my email address. And my website is www.rugaregomo.com. I'll spell that out. www.rugaregomo.com for mouse o.com. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you again so much. Thank you for your time. Again, you're amazing. Okay, Ush, what do you think about the wondrous life? <laughs> Incredible. I'm just really excited that you sent me a text last night when I asked you about his details that he's in Sydney. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like for once I get to see someone that we've interviewed because they're amazingly always Melbourne based. <laughs> and the other one was London. <laughs> Yes, there's a few connections there, isn't there? And even the African connection with your family as well. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to meet him. I actually shot him a message last night. It was amazing <laughs> to connect. Yeah, I just, I absolutely adore the story. And like I said, it sort of really resonates with my parents who were born and raised in, in Africa too. And, you know, left the country to start a new life, but they went into London. So mm. yeah, I, I think, you know, how lucky was it and how privileged he was to have his mum do what she was doing to be able to make that initial connection right yeah very much so it's you know we've spoken about it with a few guests about how they opportunities show up in their life but they take those opportunities yes whereas you see so many others just probably have opportunities go past them don't they yeah and they haven't really acted on them I loved how he was saying you know he didn't tell anyone that he wrote the letter and he was he he sounded quite pleasantly surprised didn't he that his dad was actually okay with it Mm. and and really supportive yeah I wonder how long his dad sat on the letter or processed that for himself but it sounds like his dad was also you know very emotionally intelligent working with youth and things like that too so while he must have felt the loss he would have seen the opportunity yeah exactly yeah yeah and I, and I was like sort of mulling last night going I wonder what the hard bit would have been for for Regari was you know just the actual decision to move here or then how the whole journey started for him when he actually moved it's almost like okay the hard work isn't making a decision to move or moving it's actually what you do with that opportunity once he arrived here Mm, that's right it's getting off that plane it's settling into a house with other people it's the first day at school yeah yeah it's navigating all those things and even his story about how his status like his status affected him as a young kid sort of being without is stateless and then 
to get the passport to get to Australia and then he doesn't have status in Australia to get university education and Mm. then to even get a job as well. So that continually played out for him. Yeah, that's right. And and it is about the, um, you know, how you feel about your identity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. to go like I'm trying to do all of these things and you know who am I where am I you know especially being stateless I think that's just you know it it really would make an impact okay so you're born in London but then you're taken to Africa you then move to Australia you know you're you're exploring the sexuality and it's like who am I it would have been an incredible journey for him to really discover who Regari is Mm, mm. yeah Uh, and I think as you say that that also was played out for him as well he talked about being misunderstood but the the second time I listened through to the to the interview I was thinking as painful as it is particularly as a child when you feel different and excluded or not part of where you are it also seems that people who go through that and can recover from that sort of have a greater growth afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like um, the trajectory, isn't it, of going through all of that and then you you look at it, you look at almost like that rear view mirror analogy, isn't it, and you go, wow, mm. like how, how have I done that? How have I been, you know, how was I so resilient? How did I get through that? And sometimes you don't know what it is you're going through until you've got to the other end of it and you go, wow, I just didn't even realise I could have done that on my own or mm. or achieved that much. And I think it was so amazing for that guy to give him that opportunity in the first place. And I wonder what their journey is now, what their story is now too. <laughs> yeah, ongoing. I mean, the impact that Rugare will now have on the people, not only that work with him, but who come across him, hear his story. You know, I think it's a big ripple effect too, isn't it? I think that, you know, his his mission to make sure people don't live mediocre lives, that that's not okay for him, you know, I think is really at least cause for people to pause and go, actually, my dreams and visions were greater and what what's holding me back except myself. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think from that coaching perspective for him, you know, he'd be able to really challenge people and and not not in a comparison form but to go look if this is what I had to endure and I can do it what it is that what is it that you have to do and why can't you do it it's interesting about the um the law side of things isn't it I always find that I think he's a second person I spoke to in the last few weeks that has said that when they find something to work on that is so purpose and so mission related other things around them feels like it isn't anymore Mm. Yeah, and they sort of fall away or become so obvious, like you were saying, it was so blatantly obvious running those two businesses that the law firm was just losing money hand over fist and the coaching business was growing exponentially. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a big call to make as well. You know, it's not an easy decision to go, okay, well, it's not working or it's not aligned to my values or purpose, so I'm not going to do this anymore and to close that chapter and and really, you know, go all in into into the coaching and training side. Mm, huge point. Yeah, because his identity as well would have been so wrapped up with having done a law degree and becoming a lawyer. You know, it's a huge achievement. And then all that, the cost and time and effort to put into it, a lot of people can't let that go because of the sunk cost. Mm. Yeah, but look at him now, right? He's thriving. Mm. Mm. And in the place that he is happy in and yeah it'll be really interesting I also like the thing he's doing with this foundation because I wonder what an inspiration he is to the people back at home for him in his home country as well mm. and and what they think you know and, and for him to be that voice to go if I can do it you can do it too mm. Mm, that's right and his own family being so proud as well so yeah Yeah, I think, well, again, I suppose the GOMO Foundation was a huge learning curve too. all the hurdles he had to do to create this legitimate organisation. And I suppose to have it particularly based in Australia, I'm sure we've just got some of the highest regulations around all that stuff. Take the learnings from it, but he also learnt 
you know, what his real strengths were in that arena as well. And that, you know, you can't do it all. So partner with someone who has the strengths that you're missing and bring your strengths to create something greater. Yeah, that's right. And and just really align to your mission, right? And I, I think, you know, when you are aligned to your mission, it, it doesn't, and we've spoken about this before, it doesn't feel like work or effort. Mm. It just becomes almost like an extension of who you are and who you are living and breathing. And I think that's sort of what that foundation is going to be and is. Mm. <laughs> mm. He's cool. I liked him. Yeah. Yeah. I've got so many favorites. I can't believe it. Like, <laughs> Every time we interview someone, I'm like, oh my God, I'll just send my favorite, the menu favorite. <laughs> I thought exactly that when I sent you the recording, I said, this will be your new favorite. <laughs> yeah, because it was, it was Matt. Matt held the pole position for a week. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I actually worked with Regare. I did one of his one-on-one workshops, a two-day one-on-one. And it was really inspiring interesting deep and I keep thinking I need to go back to those recordings and look over them again because when he talks about you know questioning the the stories and the things that you believe about yourself or believe the way things should be more can open up don't don't they it's just quite often it's difficult to even pinpoint those underlying beliefs and stories that are playing out Mm, yeah that's right you can see that he does a lot of that work where he's uncovering you know our conditioning our paradigms and how those how how that conditioning affects you know the reality of our current life and the results of our current life as well and so much of our outer results is what's going on in our minds so much of it you know I, I think you just can't get away from it and, you know, I remember doing my training with a couple of people and around neuroleadership and the subconscious mind. And they say, if you're not happy with the results that you've got in your outside life, look at what's going on inside your head, because mm. that's where the change needs to happen. It's actually not external. It's internal. Mm. Mm. Oh, he's screaming. Marshy. I've got a cat that's like in the body of a dog, soul of a dog. <laughs> <laughs> It was a couple of episodes ago that we had Kim Morrison on and she certainly says that your performance is 90% mental. You know, that lady who ran the 100 miles, the first yes. to run that, what it was it, in under 24 hours or something, craziness. And, yeah, my experience with physical training is certainly that it's 90% in your head because I know your body can perform. It's then when you're using your own brain to create like you are in your business to create and perform and it's not something physical, it's something that you're producing. It's so circular, isn't it? Because it's your brain getting in the way of your own brain. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. When it's a brain body thing, I think it's easier to separate and it's so obvious but when it's a, a mental performance issue and your brain's stopping your own mental performance, it's hard to find that line where you, you go, okay, this, this specific thing is impacting this performance. Difficult to express, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I, I look at it like what you're, I don't know if that's what you meant, but like if you're running, and you're tired, you, you can get that it's your brain. Are you saying that when it's, you know, more around what we're doing that's not physical, it's harder to make that connection? Mm. Yeah. 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 get it. Because you can, because you know why though? I think it's because you can put it to other factors as well. You yeah. might go, it's other things in my life that's preventing me from, you know, running my business well or doing this well or having a difficult conversation. And you can, you can blame loads of other things, right, around you, the environment, the fact that you're procrastinating, the fact that you don't have enough time. Whereas if you're doing a a physical performance thing, it is just you and your body at that moment in time. So if you're quitting, it's because your brain's telling you to quit. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so there's so much more, I suppose, to dive in into ourselves and into working out, you know, what our purpose is and those sort of things. I think that quite often we we have a pretty surface level idea of that. But 
well, that other program that Regare is doing is with law students now as well. And I think that that's really crucial because, um, you know, I certainly did law because I got the marks. And so, you know, dealing with a whole lot of 18 and 19-year-olds who got into law and have no idea about their real purpose and have those huge self-confidence issues, I think it. I can see that that's going to create just this amazing cohort of young professionals yeah and I think that opportunity to talk to that you know peer support group as well to go what are our expectations of law I think that's such a big question to ask is people go into it thinking it's one thing and it's something that is totally different not necessarily bad but just different Mm -hmm. to what they think it is so I think exploring that and, and really connecting to whether it is what you want to do and it is your dream not someone else's dream or because you don't know what else to do and you've got the marks mm-hmm. that it is what you want to pursue mm. and if it's not that's okay and have that space environment to talk about what it is that you do want to do mm. yeah or is there a way that you can utilize your degree or work in the legal industry or in government that in a way that does fulfill your purpose because I mean a law degree is so versatile and that's yes. what so many people don't understand as well <laughs> exactly I think in the olden days I say olden days when we did our degrees but it was you do law you become a lawyer it was just that's what it was right mm-hmm. but now you're right it's such a skill that can be used in so many other careers as a bit of a foundation for sure absolutely well there you go I hope that you do reach out and meet and work with Rugare in some way or yeah some he's form. amazing mm. totally yeah we will <laughs> I already sent him a message yesterday so yeah hopefully we'll be able to connect this week yeah yeah so I hope that all our listeners really enjoyed that and certainly please comment on our post on our website iqmeetseq.com.au what have you got on for the next week or fortnight I am actually starting a program have you heard of Dent the key person of influence I have yes have you done it no I've got the book oh yeah and um so I'm starting that on the 1st of July so I'm like so stoked and I started started looking at it yesterday and it's it's fascinating actually it's what I realized is you don't know what you don't have in your business until you look at something like this Mm. and it then makes you go how the hell is my business functioning because (laughs) it actually doesn't have a lot of these things that need to be had in the business so I'm starting that to be able to well officially scale the business I guess in the the proper way with the right structures in place but yesterday's thing was all about you know learning about your pitch and why is it that you do what you're doing exactly what we've just been talking about and Mm -hmm. how do you connect to that and they gave this beautiful case study of this woman who was a plumber I don't know if she's went in the book I haven't read the book yet and when she first came she's like yeah I'm a female plumber and don't really know what my why is or what it is and in the end she worked out that her why was to really enable women to have a career in plumbing and for other people to recognize that and then also to connect um, water to certain countries that don't have access to it and then I think it was like about a year ago or something she was awarded like an MBE or something you know for for her work and she's like I was just a plumber but she goes I just didn't realize how to go out there and pitch myself and get the business and so like I'm really really pumped with this I think it's going to be an amazing program for me to sort of go to the next level so it starts in July so yeah I guess the next couple of weeks is just sort of going through the program and getting my head around what's coming wow that's a big program too is it a 12 month program still that they well no they condensed it now because there's no on face-to-face components so they're doing two 90-day sprints okay yeah cool but you do go through with us with the same group the whole way yeah yeah you (laughs) do yeah and it's fascinating because you know they obviously say how much time are you putting into your business as well and (laughs) they say you have to have a minimum of 60 minutes a day working on your business throughout this program so yeah I think it's going to be um really interesting of where in January next year the business EQ Academy could be yeah yeah well even looking back 12 months ago I mean the EQ Academy wasn't even in existence anyway so that's a huge step in itself and yeah you're right now you've now you're not just Ushtanik you are the EQ Academy you are setting it up to be much bigger 
have bigger impact and scale. Yeah. So that's me for the next few weeks, absorbing, learning, reading. (laughs) What about you? Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm not starting anything new. I'm just... I'm just moving forward those projects that I already have, which I feel like are enough at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, excited just to keep getting Legally Wise Women finished and talking about it more with people and and starting to engage with the legal industry and other industries about, you know, how it fills that gap and the impact that it can have for women too. So, Amazing. Mm, Look at us both. (laughs) <laughs> I know I love it though it's such a little bit of an accountability thing isn't it as well for us wow. which is great yeah it is and it is. the journey you know of yeah, yeah. last 18 months or whatever it's been for us yeah it's really two years that's right yeah we're all 2019 I think so it's just about two years and yes yeah yeah and we are we're it's a way of recording our journey too not that it I is. go back and listen to many <laughs> many of them but I mean it's it's there so exactly mm. all right well if anyone wants to get in contact with you what's the best way yeah eq.academy great and the best email for me these days is jackie at legallywisewomen.com.au so we'll chat to you again in a fortnight yay <laughs>